Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 187 of the Dance Speak podcast with Menina Fortunato. Credits include Britney Spears, Maluma, Beyonce, a ton of other artists. <laughs> TV credits include America's Got Talent, Latin Music, whoa, Latin Music, Latin American Music Awards. I'm going to keep that. Star Trek, Enterprise, DC's Legend of Tomorrow, Alias, Mad TV. Menina is someone who is always working, whether it's through her own business, teaching dancers or judging competitions. She's someone who knows how to work and has a scroll of a resume as a dancer also. Um, so really listen for that and welcome to our new listeners. Make sure that you're following us on Instagram at Dance Beat Podcast. Share this with your friends. Tag us in a post that you're listening and we'll share and we'll thank you. I want to give a heads up that I went in on submission questions for teaching around teaching and teaching at conventions is that something I'm very focused on right now. If you have any friends who are looking to get into teaching or grow their teaching, send this episode. This is going to be golden for them. And if that's not you, we discuss many other things. And I recommend when we get to the part where I'm asking about teaching, listen through the lens of how to submit for the type of work you want, whether that's as a dancer, as a choreographer, or if you're in a completely different field, this is around pitching yourself. Two quick announcements before we get into the episode. These are both opportunities to sharpen your toolbox for a competitive edge in the dance world. Okay, so number one, for anyone in Los Angeles or potentially traveling here, I know a lot of you come here during the summer, I love it. I want you to check out our supporter ESPLA. ES Photography LA is where you need to go to get your professional photos. This is for headshots, full body shots, for dance, brand photo shoots if you're in a different industry and you're like, you know, even for me, I've, I want a podcast shoot. This is it. It's a female run small business. And Suzette Mora, the founder, is someone who knows dancer needs as she comes from a dance background herself. She'll work with you to get the most out of your photo shoot and does not put a limit on looks. Mention this episode for $50 off your next photo shoot. What a treat. Just go to Instagram at es.photography.la and message to book your session or ask questions. Again, that's at es.photography.la on Instagram, and we also have that in our show notes. Dancers and teachers, one of the things that makes a massive difference in longevity as a dancer and movement quality aka your level of fierceness, is the way you train your body concurrently with dance. So not only the dance classes themselves, but what you're doing outside of it. As a certified trainer with Doctors for Dancers and as a dancer, teacher, choreographer, I can say that one of the biggest things missing is an understanding of proper cross-training technique for dance. I know that's a lot. Bear with me. This means what exercises to do and how to do them so you can execute movement to your fullest potential. This is one of the reasons I created a fitness course with 10 workouts that you can do from anywhere. It's called Fitness Fundamentals. You get a stretch video and exercise library included as well and 10 different workouts, five at one level, five at another level. It's also excellent if you've been working out for a while and you're like, I like doing this, but I don't know exactly what I'm doing. This is your 101. The whole thing costs about as much as a single personal training session and you can play it from wherever at whenever time you want to. It's on-demand videos. You also get a 20% off code, DanceSpeak20 at checkout. All you need to do is go to gogalit.com, that's G-O-G-A-L-I-T.com and click on online fitness course. 
or click down below in the show notes. Again, that's gogalit.com, G-O-G-A-L-I-T.com and click on online fitness courses. And without any further ado, the episode. Hey guys, my name is Galit Friedlander. I've worn many hats in the dance world over the last 15 plus years and have created Dance Speak as a platform for people in the dance industry to share their stories and blueprints for success. So listen up and get ready to be inspired, learn something new, and get personal with the people behind the movements you love. You are, I'm going to start here. Are you ready? Do you have any questions before I start? No, no, not at all. Perfect. You are, in spite of all of the incredible guests I've had, you, your resume actually overwhelmed me because, (laughs) and I mean it in the best way. I usually don't feel stumped by, I, I feel like I see a roadmap in a resume and I'm like, no, this is somebody who has done the work of at least five people. Oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> and so I definitely am going to want to explore some, I'd be remiss not to explore some dance life things, major pivots in your career, the creation of your programs. I'm very fascinated about the work on the back end. Um, some dance moms questions. Yeah. And then I'd also love to dedicate some time. So this is, I don't normally do this, but just a rough idea. Mm -hmm. I'd love to dedicate some time to how you organize your whole life to have everything work. That's a great question to my madness and and it is chaotic, but it is organized in the same way. (laughs) Yeah. And, and like, should we end up talking about something that's completely a tangent and has nothing to do with dance even I'm for it. Okay. I have, I have um, exposed my brain. So what would you say really basic question, but what was the beginning of your dance journey? Like your entry into, I'd say entry into the industry. So I started uh, dance um, at my father's dance studio. He was my first dance teacher. I then my helped my mother. She started a dance competition in Canada when I was 13. So I grew up as a teenager helping her with that business. And then I broke into, as I was a competitive dancer growing up. And then I transitioned around 16 was my first paid dance gig in Vancouver. Um, and then I, I went into the convention circuit and then judging competitions at 17, 18. So I was really young, mainly because of my parents being in the business. So I got an early start and then I moved to Los Angeles when I was 20. That was a long time ago. I'll give away my age. It's 2001. And um, I, I moved to LA with my cars, uh, my, my cars, my car singular. I was like, I was trying to picture a caravan. <laughs> no, no, okay. No, my car, little Ford Contour. Uh, my clothes, my desktop computer, my CD collection, because that was important back then. And um, yeah, and a dream. I moved into an apartment in North Hollywood that I'd never seen except for online. I moved in. That's with where roommate. I'm recording from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I uh, moved in with a roommate that I had never met in person till the day we moved in. Um, you know, it was, it was just this huge risk, but I was excited. I was a new kid on the block. I had, I was just there for it to fulfill my dream. That was, that's how it all began. That's amazing. And coming from the competition world and being born into it in many ways, what do you feel from that background served you as a professional dancer? And was there anything where it was like, whoa, you are in a whole different field now? Um, I think it definitely helped be, especially with the dance competition and the conventions, my parents brought in a lot of LA based choreographers and dancers. 
So I was able to establish relationships at a younger age in my teen years. So when it came time to move out to LA, I had an agent before I even got there. I already had, um, I had, because I'm Canadian, I had my O-1 visa, which is a whole nother process just to get the legal right to work as a Canadian in the US. I got the O-1. Um, so there was a lot of preliminary stuff that I had to do just to even get to LA, but I already had somewhat of a foundation. I felt um, I was head of the game. I wasn't just showing up to LA completely blind. I had a plan. I had money saved. I had an agent. I was auditioning like within the first week, I booked my first gig with Paul Abdul that first month. And then working with Britney Spears the following month on a Pepsi campaign. So uh, there was a big Super Bowl commercial, if anybody remembers that. But I remember it. I'm an 80s <laughs> baby, by the way. So just to give you a little point of reference. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So then, you know, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it sounds so long ago, but yeah, back in the day, yeah, it's the, like yesterday. Pepsi, Pepsi Super Bowl commercial. That was like kind of the big foot into the industry, working with all the names, the who's who's, you know, it was it was Barry Lather and Wade Robson, the choreographer and working with Brian Friedman and all these people that I looked up to and watched to on TV as a teenager. Suddenly I was working amongst them. And that was kind of the aha moment of like, wow, I'm here. This is actually happening. And then the rest is history. That's amazing. And so I'm not, am I fishing for the negative? I was going to say, I'm not fishing for the negative. And then I thought maybe I am. Um, was, was there anything uh, where you felt blindsided when you started off on the industry here? Um, I don't know if I was blindsided because I wasn't naive to the business. I wasn't, I didn't come completely cold. Like I had been to LA for four summers in a row before I actually Amazing. made the big move. So I already had an idea of how things you know, worked. I was, I was just new trying to figure out, you know, where I fit in and, and make myself stand out because it's so hard, as you know, everybody's beautiful and talented and the best of the best from their parts of the world. And I never actually considered myself being the best dancer. I, to this day was never the best dancer. I was the, I was happy to just place third place growing up as a kid, you know? So the likelihood of me succeeding was very unlikely growing up. I don't think even my peers even imagined that I would be able to make a full-time career, especially in LA, which is like the dance capital of the world. And, um, you know, finding my way definitely had its ups and downs. You know, there was times, I think there was that beginner's energy that I had in the beginning where I was just, I didn't really care. It was in my way. I didn't know the politics yet. So I was maybe a bit naive in that regard. And I was just happy to be here. I was, you know, I was at the front of the front of the room, learning, eager to co- you know the choreography. I didn't know the who's who. I didn't know the politics yet. And I just wanted to be seen. I just wanted to be, you know, but then, you know, you do get some rude awakenings along the way. And that's where, unfortunately, you get not jaded is not the word, but you don't get easily as impressed by things, people that you used to admire, look up to. Now you get to see them behind the scenes and you realize their life is not what you think it is. So there is a bit of a, you know, sometimes of a letdown in that regard, dealing with the feast and famine. I mean, that, that is definitely a hard roller coaster ride for dancers because I didn't have a nine to five job. And I was determined because I came, I left Vancouver with teaching five days a week at five different studios. Like it was just too much. And I told myself, I'm not going to have another job. I'm here to be a professional dancer. And I was Mm -hmm. tunnel visioned. I was in class. I was at every audition. I didn't care what the job was. I was just showing up. And, um, I, I was able to, I mean, I was able to with, you know, overcome a lot of those ups and downs. I mean, there was times where, 
money was tight and it was like, do you want to do a bar mitzvah? I was like, what's that? <laughs> like you just dance and give out party favors. I'm like, okay, sure. Make a couple hundred dollars for the night. You know, that's, <laughs> that, that puts money, you know, food on the table for the next couple of weeks. So I was like, okay, cool. I'll, I'll do that. I ended up meeting my husband there. I thought that's a whole nother story. Um, Wait. Been together 20 years. <laughs> Wait, was he another dancer? He was a attendee at the bar mitzvah. So yes and no, he was uh, the DJ at the bar mitzvah, but I didn't know that he was also a professional dancer at the time either. It wasn't until um, we broke out in a circle and he started, you know, freestyle. And I was like, wait a minute, this guy's got moves. I had no idea that he had a professional dance background at all. And um, I mean, he, I, without realizing, watched watched him dance on TV because his generation before me worked with Michael and Janet and Will Smith and Mariah Carey and all that late nineties generation. But yeah, we didn't know, we didn't work together as dancers, but I was the dancer and he was the DJ and it was- a We're getting air quotes, y'all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just for um, the, the people that are, are listening and not seeing this moment. Yeah. Totally. Because uh, I say dancer in quotations because you're just you're like, in. <laughs> you're two-stepping and giving out party favors. That's the the job, right? But yeah. you know, and then I did some go-go dancing on the side um, to make ends meet. I taught- uh, I, my, my big thing, actually, I filled the gaps, I would say, is teaching at conventions and judging dance competitions. That's what paid my bills. Um, that, that was able to fill the gaps when I wasn't working as a dancer. Because as you know, you know, you're auditioning and it's no, 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 no. And you get the one yes. Okay, great. I can pay my bills this month. And then next month you're back to like, okay, how am I going to pay next month's bills? You know, so that feast and famine roller coaster ride is definitely not for everybody. It's a very unstable lifestyle, um, but it was... I was okay with it because I loved what I did um, as a dancer. And at the time I wasn't married yet. I didn't have kids yet. I've got three kids now. Um, you know, I, I could endure that financial instability. My rent was $375. Oh I mean, I know oh that doesn't even God. exist anymore, but I, no. I had my own bedroom. I had my own walk-in closet. I had my own bathroom. I thought it was super cool. I had a pool. I had laundry. I had underground parking lot. It felt kind of secure, but it was in a rough part of, it's like North of Sherman way. If anybody knows where that is. Um, um, everyone, not, as you get more North and North Hollywood, it, it usually gets more sketchy. Now they're, they have a whole, they're like revamping it and everything. And I don't want to offend anyone, but especially then it was more no man's land. If I may, it, it was, it was rough. I put it this way. <laughs> I lived there in that apartment for a year and a half and never stepped foot outside on my street to just go for a walk. I always drove in and drove out. Um, cause I came from suburbia. So this was like very, you know, uh, very new for me, but, um, you know, I, I started at the bottom, you know, like everybody else, I wanted to have a low cost of living cause I didn't know what to expect. So thankfully my overhead wasn't too crazy. Um, so even just booking one dance job for the month paid my bills, you know, and then good. when you moved here, did you have a certain amount in savings? Um, a lot of people, you probably get this as well with your programs, ask questions. I'm thinking of moving here. What should I know? And yeah, mm-hmm. I did. I did save $5,000 when I first moved. Um, I started fresh. So I got my Ikea furniture, got my first bed <laughs> and bought a couple of used things. I think I bought a used desk. So, and I built from there. Um, but having just a little bit of cushion, I think was definitely helpful because in my mind, I was prepared to live in LA for six months without work. That was my mindset, but I was lucky enough that I didn't have to wait that long. I was working right away. Although that was the year of 9-11 that did take a dip uh, that September all the way for a good six months. There was very, very, very little work. So I, I 
and did end up doing some traveling, teaching convention stuff during that time to fill in the void. But yeah, having that, having an agent ahead of time was super helpful. Cause I, I know dancers that can spend a whole year or more looking for an agent while being in LA. And that's really frustrating. So I had that taken care of as a foreign dancer, having that, you know, work visa ahead of time is super important because I know lots of dancers that they can't work and they run out of money and they go back home. So that was, you know, I think super helpful. So having your building blocks, having somewhat of a foundation is definitely helpful. Now, do I know dancers that came to LA with $25 in their pocket and still made it? Yeah, they do exist. Absolutely. Do you want to be that dancer? Maybe not, you know, maybe having a little bit of a little bit of financial security just to get started might be helpful. So you don't have the anxiety and the stress. And I think that's why I had this energy when I first came to auditions that I wasn't like, I need this job. I have to pay my bills. I was like, I'm happy to be here. I just want to dance. <laughs> and it yeah. turned into a you know book jobs because I didn't have that desperation that I think a lot of dancers have in the very, very, very beginning of like, I don't know how to pay my bills. I got to figure this out. And they're stressed at the audition and then they don't end up booking the job because of that stress or it can have the reverse effect. Some people right. are just, there's that other, like I'm back against the wall. I got to make this work <laughs> and, and they figure it out and they do. So there's, there's, you know, a couple ways of doing it. Um, you know, I did have my back against the wall at different times in my career as well. So I had to do what I had to do, but um, you know, starting out with a little bit of money in the pocket was definitely a smart choice in my opinion. Yeah. And it's been interesting living out here for a while. I've been out here for 15 years and I've been in, I've been in North Hollywood for 11 years. That means my math is off and I've probably been out here 16 years, but <laughs> not 15. I'm like, that does not add up. But I've, I've, I feel like I kind of, I get to, you know, you never know what's happening behind the scenes, but I get to kind of observe people as they come here in waves and leave and mm-hmm. kind of see what's working for them or not. And I've noticed the same exact thing that that stress and desperation I think for most people does not work well. And for some people, they have the eye of the tiger and they're going to get that job. And I don't think that that level of necessity has worked for me. Like, I think knowing things are going to be okay is more important feeling security, but I digress. I'm super curious, having that inside view of the dance convention world, teaching it and your parents, and now Mm -hmm. you have, you have a dance intensive. Do you also have a dance convention? I'm sorry. There was so much information. (laughs) I may have recorded it incorrectly in my head. I have, I have a few things. So Minion Entertainment is my company and through Minion Entertainment, I have a variety of different programs. So I have the Hollywood summer tour, which is a dance intensive in LA, which I started in 2006. Um, that uh, basically gives dancers an introduction to the LA dance world. Um, I have the London spring tour, which is a similar program, but in London, England, which I have been doing for six, seven years now, lost track. Um, And then I also have a new online dance mentorship program, which I call the business of dance, really helping dancers prepare, shortcut their success, create that roadmap so they can have that dream dance career that they've always wanted and focus on the business side of dance. So not a dance training program, but learning about headshots, resumes, demo reels, websites, social media marketing, um, auditions, self-tape auditions, how to get an agent, nutrition, finances, taxes, And the list goes on. So all the things that you typically don't learn in the studios or sometimes don't even learn in university either. Wow. That's amazing. That's wonderful and comprehensive. And I have so many questions I want to ask that this hurts. So coming from your background with conventions, how any tips for teachers who want to break into that as judges and as teachers? And let's, unless this is the only way now putting aside that, like, unless 
you have an insane following. Is it possible to work without a major social media following? What has worked when they like, what do you look for and what gets the foot in the door? Well, I don't have a huge social media following and I've been doing it for over 20 years. So I can tell you that it's not a necessity. Now, yes, uh, you are more marketable to a dance convention if you do come with a following because they're looking at you as you can bring them an audience. And that definitely is an asset. I've never had that because when I came up, there was no social media. I had a website and back then that was like, wow, you're on the internet. <laughs> that, was, that was a big deal. And then I started having babies when social media became a thing. So I got a little bit sidetracked. And I'll have um, questions about that too. It's all up here. Um, but in order to break into the convention world, um, I mean, first you should be a teacher locally and wherever, wherever you're from, you should have experience as a teacher. I don't think that it's um, good enough to just to be a, a good dancer and just say, I'm going to teach one day and big conventions, teaching kids is an art. It's a skill. And uh, I mean, I've been doing it since I was 12, believe it or not, to be able to entertain, to keep them engaged, to teach something new, to just manage a room of hundreds of kids at one time. And it's not just a matter of creating cool combos. I mean, everybody create cool combos, but to be able to teach them, to inspire them, to motivate them and to actually make sure that they walk away actually learning something and not just being like, I'm overwhelmed. That was cool, but I didn't learn anything because I do see a lot of teachers, even, even the local LA scene that I find that are great choreographers, great demonstrators, great dancers, but not great teachers. And I'm nodding my head. My head's about to fall off. No shade y'all. And there's a big difference between being a choreographer and being a great teacher. Creating a cool combo is a great skill, but being a teacher, knowing how to break it down, the class is for the students. It's not for you to show off. It is for you to actually give something to them that they can take away. Not yes, you want to inspire them and maybe you do demonstrate one time to give them the wow factor. Cool. You can do that. Or your assistants do that, but um, it's not a demonstration class. It's a teaching class. So where I find, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm like bursting at the seams. Um, (laughs) Okay. So on that, I'm completely, not that we have to be, but I'm completely in alignment with what you're saying. And so here's the thing. I tend to feel like myself, other teachers I know that are really focused on that, less focused. I know ideally we have both happening on here, social media, like I'm going to present this. Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of the time, um, get muted. And then if you have really hot choreography, like people want to hire you for teaching and not that it has to be mutually exclusive, but I'm like, how, if it's the hot choreography, that's building it up and seems to be working, how do the teachers that are more focused on the actual craft of teaching and making sure that they're educating properly, like how can that work out? It's definitely a tough balance to get yourself seen unless you have relationships with people, let's say in the convention world. Um, If you're respected as a teacher and they know that you don't have a following, they'll bring you in. There's a lot of OG teachers that are still in the game that don't have followings, but they're just good teachers. And I think conventions like to have a nice balance between the mature seasoned educator versus the new hot social media influencer that gets the kids all excited. And I think a little bit of both is a good balance because they bring something different to the table. That younger, fresh off of a TV show, fresh off of a tour, you know, major influencer, whatever, they they do offer some excitement. They do offer yeah. eyeballs, which is important because this is the dance. This is the business. So I understand why the younger teachers do get hired with the big followings and all that. And there's a place for them. But if you balance them out with a seasoned educator, I think it does provide a more uh, well-balanced faculty. Um, But 
you have to know your strengths, whatever those strengths are. If you are a great choreographer, showcase your choreography and that may get you the job. If you're a great educator, show that you're a great educator, having demo reels, having marketing materials. I mean, that's super important, whether you have a big social media following or not, have a good demo reel, have a great resume, maybe have a website to actually look like you're a professional, not just on social media, um, you know, and, and relationships. I really think that a lot of like, I, I can't even think of any, I don't know if I've even actually submitted for any judging or teaching jobs. Most of the times it's just through a friend of a friend and a referral. Mm -hmm. And I saw you here and I found your website or I found you on social. Like there's always been connecting the dots, but if you're starting from scratch, I mean, I would just start by get the email list of dance conventions and competitions and submit, submit your headshot, your resume, your demo reel, your social media. If you have a website, um, maybe you have some accolade testimonials you want to throw in there, um, some kind of pitch and a nice cover letter of introducing yourself. Hey, my name is, I specialize in teaching this. You can see some of my work here. Here's my marketing materials. Would love an opportunity to meet with you. Maybe we can meet over zoom and we can discuss possibilities and go from there. And, um, you know, being professional, uh, even all your marketing materials that will get you stand out. Cause I know that for my parents, they get a kajillion um, submissions and half of them they get, they ignore, um, because they're just so poorly presented. And a lot of times the people that they hire, they actually get nervous to hire somebody completely new without referrals. So referrals, I think is super valuable. If somebody can say that you are a great teacher or you are a great judge or whatever those, what your skills are, they're more likely to trust that new person rather than completely cold. And I think that's just the nature of this business. It's all about who, you know, and who knows you. So having that referral into. So if you know somebody that's teaching in the convention circuit and there's a particular convention that you want to be a part of, if they can refer you there in addition to submitting all your materials, I think you'll have a much better chance. That's, um, this is really, really helpful. I just want to say that this is oh, really thanks. helpful. Yeah. Is there a best time of year to submit for conventions? And then I'll, I'll move it into different Yes. So conventions are seasonal. They're generally the fall. Sometimes they go into the winter. So it'd probably be a good idea to touch base after their season, uh, at the end of their season, and then maybe follow up again, um, you know, mid, I would say mid summer, like summertime depends on what, if they're a convention in the fall and, and are they a competition in the spring and then they have a nationals. So maybe like right after their nationals, if they have one to follow up with them and, you know, just say, hope you had a great season, blah, blah, blah. Before you, you know, get geared up for the new season, I would love to submit. Now you could submit mid, like right in the middle of the season, if you want as well and follow up again, right after their nationals. But I know just from the rhythm of my parents and my brother who now directs their competition, they take a deep breath after nationals after after the season's over they usually take a couple week vacation and then they get back to work and start with the prepping so that's usually a good time is before they actually announce their new dates or announce their convention faculty but it doesn't hurt to plant a seed sooner too just to be like hey this is my stuff and maybe it'll get ignored because they're super busy and then you can follow up again hey i submitted a few months ago just wanted to follow up did you get a chance to see my stuff and then maybe try to get a referral that someone's going to connect you and then be like okay you again let's have a, <laughs> a conversation so you may not get in on the first try sometimes it takes a few times and sometimes they read your email and just forget and i mean we all do this you know you read an email and you're like okay i'll I respond to that and you totally forget and then yeah. You miss, you know, so sometimes it may need a follow-up message, you know, if a couple of weeks later, Hey, I emailed you the other week. I know you're probably really busy. Do so you could get a chance to look at it? We'd love to chance to speak to you, meet over zoom, et cetera. Yeah. It's really interesting. I applied to teach at a studio 
year, like years ago, I remember just going, applying to every studio. And I remember they were like, and I had experience and they were like, you can apprentice, you can apprentice for $15 an hour. I'm an adult. Thank you. I'm an adult in LA. Like I, I do take this very seriously. I had assisted at steps and I had like, you know, created, like I had done like just a nice, a humble, but like an, a solid body. And the same studio reached out six months ago. Like mm-hmm. I had it and it was so interesting, like to see it full circle. Also, sometimes it's not, you know, and it, it wasn't something that I, I, I could agree to with what rent is out here, but, and, (laughs) and and I I heard some things about the treatment of their students. that's not in alignment. And Mm. so I don't mean to foo-foo it, but it's like, it is so interesting. Sometimes, you know, you can be really hungry for something, but the time also happens when it does, but we don't know if we don't try. Um, Yeah. It doesn't hurt to submit. I mean, the worst you get is a no, you're in the same spot you started. And uh, if you keep submitting every now and then. I mean, I'm sure the agents get the same thing. They've got bombarded with submissions and they look at it like, okay, that's cute. And they move on and then they forget. And sometimes should be in their face. If you really, really want to work with someone, like if you don't really care and you're just blindly submitting to a bunch of, you know, you can do that too, where you just blindly submit to all the conventions and competitions and just see who bites. I mean, you can Mm -hmm. do that. Um, But if there's one in particular that you're really trying to go after that get somebody on the inside. I think that's really helpful. Mm-hmm. Someone that can recommend you and, and, you know, edify you to them because yeah, if you go in blind, they're like, Oh, you'd be a great apprentice. We can I get summer. stressed out. Like when I'm writing the, when I'm writing submission emails, I'm like, which links do I choose? And I need to make it concise enough and easy to read, but also give enough stuff to support that I'm a strong candidate. And right. Right. No, um, it's, a, it's a tough balance. I get it. Between the dancers that you know um, as peers, the dancers that you've worked with, do you have a story of like a most creative submission to get a job or agent? Mm. If not, it's not, and I can cut out pauses. Most, mm-hmm. no, I mean, I'm sure, I know I personally have referred a lot of dancers to agents. Um, I, you know what? I'll tell my story, how I Hell got my yeah. first dance agent. Yes. So um, I was 18, I think, or 19, I forget. It was in the late 90s. Um, and <laughs> I was assisting a choreographer on a job and, um, he needed to go to see his agent. He's like, Oh, just come with me. I'm like, okay, cool. And, um, I came into the agency at the time it was uh, DDO. If anybody remembers them back then, it was Bill Bull, uh, who's now owner of MTA. And I walked in with him and, um, he was having a meeting. I didn't really say much of anything. He just introduced this as my assistant, blah, blah, blah. And then the choreographer left the room for something. I don't remember what, but, um, then Bill Bull was like, so who are you? And I've introduced myself. And, and so you're a dancer. He's like, do you have an agent? And I said, no, I don't, I don't live here yet. I'm Canadian. I'm trying to get my work visa, but I would like to be here. It's like, oh, interesting. Well, I really like your look. And, you know, the choreographer here says you're really good. And um, if you ever move out here, if you ever get your visa, let me know. I'd love to consider, you know, representing you. He'd not seen me dance. He'd seen no marketing materials. I literally just walked into the office with one of their choreographers. And that was the, here's my business card conversation. And that was a like, I was so excited after that meeting. I was thinking, oh my gosh, I got to make this work. And he ended up being my very first dance agent um, when I moved to LA. And I remember it took me a year from that initial point of contact to be able to um, 
to actually move to LA and actually get to work. But I kept in contact that entire year. I was like, okay, I just applied. Okay. I just, I got a new website, check this out. And I'm okay. I'm moving on this date. Like I just kept in touch that whole year. And then the moment, and I actually know even before I moved, I came for a visit. It was sometime in the spring and I'm like, I'm here for a week. I don't know if I can really do anything, but if you want to throw some auditions at me, I got my visa so I can technically work, but you know, I'm here. Anyways, I think I had six or seven auditions that week and I got a call back and made every single last round. And I ended up, ended up booking Christina Million's tour. Oh my uh, God. Uh, Brian Friedman was the choreographer during the audition, but then they um, ended up hiring Showtime for that. And then um, my agents uh, had called me. They're like, Hey, you just booked this tour. Can you be in rehearsals on Monday? And I don't know, maybe it was like a Thursday or Friday. And I'm teaching at five studios, five days a week. So I'm notifying everybody. I'm like, okay, guys, I'm packing my bags. I guess I'm going to LA. I'm going on tour. And Christina Million was opening for NSYNC, which were huge at the time. So, and nobody, Christina Million was very unknown at the time. Um, and, uh, I was just so excited. And I remember just like dropping my life in Vancouver and jumping on a plane. I showed up to rehearsals at millennium at the dome. If anybody was old enough to remember the dome it's talked about, it's been referenced in so many episodes, just so you know, okay. like in the best way. So you have a lot of episodes. The dome that you're is with. Like it was my home, but anyways, so I show up to rehearsal and they're like, what are you doing here? I'm like, <gasps> what do you mean? Your agent told us you were in Canada. And I go, no. I was, um, but I came here for rehearsal. They're like, I'm sorry. We already booked somebody else. And there was two girls on, um, on the, 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 the tour. And they're both actually my good friends too. Um, and they're like, and I was like, I just dropped my whole life. <laughs> I would have, I would have bust out ugly crying. I was I not like, help it. I was trying to be optimistic, but inside my heart was just crushed. Cause this was like my first, I, what I thought big break, you know? And yeah. And, and I was like, well, can I just stay for rehearsal and learn the choreography? I flew all the way down <laughs> and they're like, okay, you can learn the choreography. Um, and, and then I was, and then I told my agent, I'm like, is there any way they could like throw in another girl? Like, is it in the budget, you know? And, you know, she was a new artist at the time. So of course it wasn't in the budget. And, um, I only rehearsed, I don't know if it was one day or maybe I didn't rehearse two days. I can't remember. I learned, I learned quite a bit of choreography though. I remember that much. And, um, it unfortunately didn't work out. And I had to, with my tail between my legs, go back to Vancouver, ask for my jobs back. I'm like, okay, I'm not moving yet. I guess I'm moving in July when I originally planned on moving, but I was ready to drop everything to go on tour. But in hindsight, I will say that everything happens for a reason, because as much as I wanted that tour and as much as I was like so excited about it, I would have been on tour and I would have missed the Britney auditions. And I was going to be my question. Was it? And I did. I did the Britney world tour auditions was like a grueling two day audition. I don't know. 7,800 dancers is crazy. I made it to the final cut of that tour, but I did not book the tour. And that's when I booked Pepsi instead. And Pepsi, if I did the math correctly, I did, I made, I think about 3000 ish on the session fees for the, like the rehearsal and the, and the, the shoots. Um, and then I made, and I got bumped, um, because I had one little shot holding a Pepsi and doing this little like fifties dance. It was just one shot. I got upgraded to principal and then I'm making $35,000 on that job, which was way more than the tour for Christina Milian. And then it was Britney Spears who at the time was at the top of her game. And I remember watching her, you know, on MTV VMAs the year prior thinking like, oh my God, it'd be a dream to dance with her and her dancers and 
Um, so in the end, like everything aligned and happened the way it was supposed to happen. And, um, I didn't get to that job with Christina, but I ended up, you know, booking Pepsi Brittany instead. So it worked Yay! out. <laughs> I love I, hearing I, that. And I still think of it as one of my, my favorite jobs. Like it was just one of those, like I made it jobs. It was just like, I didn't even know what residuals were at that time. My agents, I was excited for $3,000 for the week, for the 10 days of work. I was like, this is great. They're like, oh honey, this is, this is just the beginning. Wait till you get those residuals. I was like, what's that? <laughs> Can you explain to the listener who might not know? Okay. So a residual is kind of, it's the same term basically is royalty. So every time a commercial airs on TV, if it's a union job, because there are some non-union jobs that give you a buyout, but if it's a union job, this one was a SAG job, um, then you get paid every single time that it airs on TV. And this particular commercial was Super Bowl. That's the most expensive time slot for commercials. So I think I made just $5,000 alone just from the airing of the Super Bowl. Um, and then it aired internationally for like a year and a half. So I just was getting all these like sporadic checks in the mail, just ongoing. I think that kept me afloat really, because it was like, oh, a few hundred here, a couple thousand here, you know, um, I didn't realize the power of residuals and I've never had a commercial like that. That was my very first commercial ever in life. And I think that was probably the best commercial because they don't make commercials like that anymore. They, they run them, they air them for a little bit and then they're done. Like the old commercials used to air for like a year or sometimes two years. Um, but yeah, that was, that was, a, that was a nice gig. I enjoyed Yay! that. It feels good to give. It feels good to get. Oh my God. I'm not a singer, but I always like doing that. All right. So we have plenty coming up on this episode. I wanted to take a quick moment to thank anyone who's ever donated to this episode and let you know you have an opportunity to help out with a really good cause, which is this podcast. It really does help people in their careers and we're sharing people's authentic stories. The thing is, this is not free to make and we really do rely on donations to keep this going on. It costs to do things like website hosting, which we need to always have, to do programming, to get equipment and keep it updated. And that is just the beginning of it. So literally any donation makes a difference even if it's $2 or $5, we thank you. If you're feeling that you have even more that you can give and you want to be an episode sponsor or make a nice, you know, $20, $50 donation, literally it all makes such a big difference. You can donate via Venmo or PayPal. You'll donate to the podcast email, dancepeakpodcast at gmail.com and just send it as a gift so they don't take a percentage out. So Venmo, PayPal, dancepeakpodcast at gmail.com and we thank you ahead of time. Okay, now more of the episode. Thank you for for sharing that story. It's the questions that I have you're answering. Um, a lot of I know them you asked me I how, I, how I got an agent that just turned into this whole. It, <laughs> I love it. I'm so happy that you shared it. Especially, it speaks to how heartbreaking it can be not to dramatize it, but you know, to drop your life and be that committed and then walk into the room. And like my heart, I, I, my heart feels it right now as I hear it, you know, and there are different stories of for one reason or another, not getting that job that was promised. But what I'm also hearing is that you were gonna, you were committed to the journey more so than attached to any one outcome. And that I think that's what works. And I try to remind myself of to like, like keep, keep your eye on the bigger picture. Um, and as you're bringing up finances, this is, uh, this 
feels so good. So I'm right now editing an episode with Fresh Redding and he talks about, um, I just edited the part, we do very light edits on when you break it down, a lot of the time dancers are making minimum wage. Mm-hmm. When you actually break down the hours and or very close to it. And I saw in your press kit that when you're, you're talking about the business of dance, I, I saw like a choreographers on average, you're making like $20 an hour. Or that's dance. Can you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I found this study. I'm going to pull it up really quick. Apparently Please. in 2018, the study um, says the average dancer makes 16.31. So $16 and 31 cents per hour. And is this average, in the world or LA? Um, or? This is us, a us study. Okay. Um, Mm -hmm. And the average choreographer makes $22 and eight cents per hour. And the average dance instructor makes $20 and 98 cents per hour. Huge wake up call. And those are not livable wages. And you're not the, you're literally saying what I'm listening to in this episode edit for our next episode. So whoever's listening to this by now, Fresh's episode has been released, but so yeah. Okay. So when you're teaching dancers or people in the dance world, like what are some tidbits that you can give us when you're talking about having this be workable and livable for a dancer, choreographer, teacher, if you can? I think because we are artists, we're athletes, oftentimes we forget that we're also a business. And that's really what I focus on even in my mentorship program is really helping to understand your value and understand this is not a hobby. This is your life. This is your career. And if you're a doctor or a lawyer, you get well paid for that skill. And dancers, we train our entire lives. And if you're a competition kid, your parents probably invested thousands and thousands of dollars to be a competitive dancer. And then you want to transition to become a professional. But oftentimes there is this um, assumption and maybe the stats are the reason why that you can't make a full-time living in dance. And for some, that might be true. For those that don't know how to make this a career and don't know how to make this a business, yes, you may be one of the people making $16 an hour or $20 an hour, but it does not have to be that way. In fact, there are people that are making very, very, very good wages. I know teachers that are making $1,000 an hour, $2,500 an hour. I know um, influencer dancers that are making $15,000 starting just to make a TikTok video for a brand. So there's definitely a lot of money to be made um, in this dance world. You just need to know how to monetize your passion. And in like in business, you have to be professional. So just like our calling card is a headshot, a resume, having good marketing materials, demo reels, websites, social media marketing, your online presence, like all of those things matter because people you're constantly judged in this industry. People will judge you. Um, you know, sometimes they judge the book by its cover. So your cover better be pretty good. And yes, the inside of your book must be fantastic as well. So when they open the book, it's like magic. And they're like, wow, you're like, you know, a a smorgasbord, you know, there's a buffet of so many different cool things about you. And, um, you need to know how to present that. I mean, I look, I took, when I talk to my clients about branding, for example, when we talk about, um, McDonald's or Nike or Apple, um, or all Kellogg's, are they necessarily the best in their market? 
Not always. In fact, when we look at some like Kellogg's or McDonald's, they're horrible when we actually look at the content of what's inside their products, but their marketing is genius. And that's why they're multi-billion dollar corporations. So dancers have to understand and treat their brand in the same way. They need to package their brand in a way that's attractive, in a way that is marketable so that it can be sold because we are commodities. Unfortunately, I don't, I know it sounds kind of cold to say, but we are commodities. We are constantly selling ourselves. The moment we try to go to an audition, we are selling ourselves. When we try to get an agent, we are selling ourselves. Um, learning the art of selling period is a whole nother skill that dancers need to, to understand. So to be a talented dancer is great, but that's not the end all be all. And to be an artist is great, but you don't want to be that starving artist that we that we often hear about. So if you can figure out how, what your passion is, whether you're a dancer, teacher, choreographer, or anything else in dance, and figure out how to monetize it. And that has been the big um, obstacle that I have faced even in my own career, because I started off as a professional dancer. But then as time went on, I got married, had a baby, being on tour was not going to be a thing for me anymore. So I had to kickball change and pivot hair whip, you know, and figure out how am I going to navigate this next journey, this next path. And our, our dance life can go into chapters. You know, you can go through that training phase. You can be that new kid on the block. You can be that seasoned professional. Then you can graduate to assistant choreographer, then choreographer, teacher, judge, producer, director, casting director, agent. There's so many different avenues within the dance world. Then you can climb your way up the ladder, but you need to know when to pivot. You need to also know how to make a living doing it. And that's super important is understanding how to monetize your passion. So for dancers, are you emphasizing like, you know, the money you can make from social media or higher ticket jobs, such as commercials and things that are going to bring in royalties or like, you know, I know a lot of people want to dance for artists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we touch on all those things. I mean, I, I'm very real with them about the possibilities of what they can make. Also be real about how some people don't make much of anything at all, you know, and you can be at different, everyone's at different stages and, um, you know, your, your value goes up with experience, with, with time, with um, more connections. And yeah, I think it's, it's super important for, for dancers to know what is out there, what financially they can make if they pursue, uh, you know, if they want to be a rockette, if they want to go on Broadway, if they want to work in TV, if they want to work in film, if they want to work on a cruise line, they need to know what those, the, what the compensation is going to look like. So they, they actually know what they're getting themselves into. Cause sometimes they're like, Oh, that sounds lovely. I want to do, you know, whatever X, Y, Z job is. And they get there and they go, that's it. This is all I make. <laughs> That's happened to me before, <laughs> right? That you happened. Know. Yep. I remember, um, sorry. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I remember dancing in China and they had, they, we were getting paid so little, but it was mm -hmm. my first time dancing abroad. And I was like, I'm going to be on a team and we're going to rehearse together and work on technique and perform. And I can really hone in on my craft. We got paid first of all, so little. Mm -hmm. And we had to, we thought we were going to be able to cook food at our, in our living accommodations and we couldn't, we could only eat out. So that already, that mm -hmm. was already, and no, we were not given per diem. And then, yeah. And then I remember they took out an extra $200. I remember seeing the cash leave the hand and, mm. and they said, yeah, it's in the contract, which they didn't, they did not respect anything else in the contract, but they said, yeah, there's a clause. So you're getting $200 less because we have a booking fee or some, some, 
but yeah, sorry. So I'm just like, uh-huh. Yeah. Nothing like being on the job. It's happened twice that I've had somebody who took out a fee that I wasn't clear. And I'm not talking mm-hmm. about an agent taking their 10%. I'm talking right. about being a teenager, booking a job. And the person who got me the job saying, yeah, I take 20% out of, cause I'm a manager and like not communicating it. it's bad. So uh, correct me. So oh, yeah. they claim to be your manager. There was a management fee from doing the job. It was somebody that I was in their dance crew and they were the choreographer and they would sometimes book us out on gigs. And I did not know at all that they're that w- what they did. And I don't think they were trying to pull one over me. I think that they just like, it didn't occur to them to let me know. So it was, I remember it was a promotional video for two new artists and I was leaving school early. I was cutting school to make it to rehearsals and we were going to get paid $200. And I remember like, okay, like $200 to me in high school was still $200. It was good. Okay. Was oh, sure. and like, I got paid. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. And and then the money I got was 160. And I, I asked her, Hey, I thought it was 200. And she said, I don't know. I take out 20% because I'm your, it's the manager fee. So, so they were in her world, manager, but probably in her not world. legally a manager. Cause there's no contract between you guys. Nope. I didn't know that. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody took you for a little ride <laughs> and took your naivety because you were young and you were green and they're just, uh, you know, obviously they were not clear of the expectations and the outcome of what was going to happen and that you got sideswiped. So sorry that happened to you, but I can't say that I'm surprised to be honest. I think does that that happen. Yeah. I, I personally have not experienced that, but I have heard through the grapevine. I won't mention any names of people that have kind of acted kind of like manager agent relationship, but they're not legally manager agent. They just be like, Hey, I'll get you on this job, but you got to give me 20% or 10% or whatever. And people will just agree to it because they're like, well, cool. You just got me a, a direct booking. So yeah, that's fine. That's cool. So I've heard of people doing that. I've never done that, nor have I ever had someone do that for me, but I've heard of that happening. What I'm not mad at is so I know someone who did it and she had, she had a direct in and she, she was talking to me and she was very excited and it actually sounded great. She was like, yeah, I was able to negotiate a higher rate for everyone. And I created a 10% booking fee, which I communicated ahead of time. And so she made it clean and easy. They weren't making less money and they were getting the gig and it was like smooth. So that sounded that's fair. That's fair. If somebody did that, cool. But yeah, I had somebody else who wanted me to teach overseas and they told me, I hope you don't, I'm like, I'm trying not to get too venti and ranty, but this is stuff that happens. Well, sure. Let it It out. It sounded really exciting. I think, and I think it was like 3000 for the month. And he said to me, yeah, you should be getting paid more money, but this is what they're going to pay. It was either 3000 or 4000. And he said, And I would want you to give me 500 of that because I negotiated it and everything. And what was weird about it is he was complaining about the pay and then asking for 500 out of 4,000, I guess that 15%, I'm I'm trying to do big math, uh, quick math, but that's a nice cut and was Mm -hmm. telling me anyway, you're not getting paid what you should get paid. And when I try to negotiate with them, everyone got mad at me, but Hmm. Early on, this was all very, it was super early on, like a long time ago. That's an unusual situation. I mean, I'm sure stuff like that happens all the time. I personally have not experienced that. um, And I definitely have never done that to somebody else either. 
but there are like legal booking agents, you know, like mm-hmm. a booking, like our managers that that's their job is to find you work and they get a cut. That's fine. But um, yeah. yeah, just to take money out of it. That's shysty. That's not okay. Yeah. Um, I don't know about that. I don't know how I feel about that. one. <laughs> yeah. Well, it feels when I talk about it, it feels gross. I'm okay with yeah. it. If someone's getting you an opportunity where you're getting compensated very fairly and they've like sure. done the work for you, then cool. Yeah, that's but- fine. That's fine. And if it's, it's communicated up front, but it's yes. the, it's the back end surprise. That's where I think it's unethical. If they're communicated up front, like, Hey, I have a potential job for you. I've already negotiated. These are the terms. Uh, there is a booking fee that goes to me. And if you agree to that, then that's that I would think would be fair, fair game. But if it's uh, yeah, I got this job for you. Here's the job. Oh, by the way. So it's like, <laughs> it's like me saying, I'm going to make you a sandwich. I see you're hungry. And then handing you a sandwich with bites in it and saying, yeah, I took, <laughs> took my part. Right. Well, I gave you the sandwich, right? So I just had to take a bite too, but here, here's the rest of it. <laughs> it's my finder. It's my sandwich finder's fee. Right. Um, <laughs> where do we go from here? Are there any things that you find you're surprised that they haven't changed yet in the industry with the scope you have? Geez, there's a, probably a lot of those. I feel like choreographers have had a long fight. I know that there's works about the choreographers, yeah, choreography guild, but they, I know they've been fighting for their place with SAG and AFTRA for a really long time. And I'm surprised it has taken this long to get any kind of momentum or action. I'm also surprised that the dancer rates from when I was younger haven't changed much over the years. Like I think even my husband in the nineties made more money on some of his gigs than what dancers are making now. And as we know, the cost of living, especially in LA or even New York is like through the roof. So I often wonder because I'm no longer the auditioning working dancer in LA, but I often wonder how are dancers making ends meet right now when the pay, the wages have not increased much at all, but the cost of living has like maybe quadrupled. And how are they surviving? Is it everybody's got like 10 million roommates? Is that, is that how we're living now in LA? Is that, um, do we have a million jobs? Are we bartending and hostessing and retail and doing all the things to make ends meet? Um, because I just, yeah. Yeah, go my ahead. sense you... is side gigging. Sorry. My sense is side gigging. I don't think that people, when they're going through it, will talk about how many roommates they have or that they're even without a home. Some people have brought that up that they're unhoused after they'll say I was showering Mm. at the gym and living out of my car, but like you have to work a side job, some form of it. Mm -hmm. If, if you're paying your way out here normally. Well, yeah. I mean, even when when I was coming up, you had to have some other stream of income. So I had friends that did other jobs. I never had a nine to five job. Mine was teaching and judging. That was kind of my fill in the, you know, pay the bills type of job. But um, I just know, like I had, my rent was 375, you know? So now I have friends that are telling me an apartment. I think one of my friends said her rent is 3,500 in Toluca Lake, where I used to live. Uh, I used oh, to live I down Toluca the street Lake. in Burbank. And um, yeah, everything that I used to rent is like more than triple doubled since when I was, was living there. And, but then the wages haven't really significantly gone up. So I'm like, how are you surviving? And I, and I still had friends that were couch surfing you know, that would stay at friends' houses and sleep on couches. Like that was a thing back then. So I'm like, is there more of that? Is there more of sleeping in the car, going to the gym to shower? 
Um, and the struggle is real in LA. Like I know a lot of people that have exited because of it, whether they've gone to, um, cheaper places to live like Las Vegas, um, or some of them have gone to Miami, going to Florida, or some of them just pull out of the business altogether because they can't survive. Yeah. Please feel free, like, or anyone DM me if you have questions about that. I know the housing market really well here. And generally, if you want to be comfortable and have roommates in the Valley, I would say it still starts at a thousand. It'll be between a thousand and 1500. If you want to live in a place that like, just, it's just like a studio studios are usually going to be 2k and more, but you can go more basic and everything, get some roommates, but really if you want to be comfortable and that's relative, you got to plan on at least a thousand for a shared space. Right. But like, I believe it. If not more, if you really want something like decent, that's just bare bones, basic. Yeah. yeah the, the $375 rent for your own room thing is like, doesn't happen. It's <laughs> like longing. No. Um, yeah. There's free. He has a, I forgot what it's called. The, yeah. There's a shared dance, dance yeah, home for dancers or something. Cause I know yeah. that Paris used to have her home for dancers, but I think that's no longer. And uh, free, I think still has his, I don't remember the name of it, but um, no, I mean, those are great options. Those are great alternatives, especially for people that are just coming out to LA that have nothing and new network. Furnished. Yeah. And it's also a great place to meet other dancers. Um, so yeah, getting your feet wet in the door. If you're there, just there temporarily, if you're just visiting, those are good options as well. Um, but, um, I always, I mean, I always had roommates living in LA until, you know, until I got married, I always had a roommate. I've never, I've actually never lived alone my entire life (laughs) crazy enough from my parents' house to roommate after roommate after roommate. And then my husband. Yeah. There's something good about that. I think I I don't, I don't enjoy it. I have friends who are like, Oh, I can't deal with roommates. I want my own space. And, and I, and I get that and I can appreciate that. Um, but I also like coming home to someone. I like to be able to talk to someone and just, you know, like, how was your day? How was your day? And not feel like scared that somebody's going to like break in, (laughs) you know, and that's um, real. And that is a real thought, you know, especially when I lived in North Hollywood, that was a real thought. Like, you know, doors are locked, everything's locked. And, you know, just for, as a female, I think too, for your own safety, just having an extra person that knows where you are and when you're coming home. And if you don't come home, then there's reason to be concerned or, um, but if there's nobody looking after nobody, like like being accountable for you, like you go missing for days and nobody would even know. I literally have that thought sometimes. Um, yeah, I've lived by myself since for like a decade since my last roommate, I've been in the same spot for a long time, rent controlled. So I stay here and there's, there are things about it. I love, I do look forward to, you know, moving in with a special someone, but I don't think I had a nightmare last night that I had a roommate, but suddenly I had a roommate <laughs> and I had to figure out where, what was where in the fridge. And, um, <laughs> it's oh, so I have funny. roommate stories too. Roommates can, can be great or they can be, a can you share one of them? <laughs> um, well, I'll say my best roommate was actually my very first roommate. I actually thought she was I lucked out with her. She was awesome. We vibed well. We figured out the bills well. She was reliable. One of the key things that I always did, this is just my personal preference, maybe not for everybody. I always roommated with somebody that was not in the dance business. And I have a a few reasons for that. I wanted somebody that I could vent to when I came home and actually speak freely and not be worried about you know, if you have a rough day and you want to just be able to vent, you don't want to share it to somebody else in the dance world that gets 
but shares it to somebody else so you know, and before you know it, rumor is out that you said this, I don't want to deal with that. I want to be able to have a safe space where I can just vent to someone. I also don't didn't want to feel the competition between somebody else so that if you were like, let's just go to a carpool and add an audition together. And then what happens when one of you books it and one of you doesn't, and one of you gets you know, stays to the end. And then one of you gets cut. And then there's that awkwardness. One of you is celebrating and the other one's feeling crappy. So having that competitive at home environment, I didn't want to deal with that either. That's a good point. Um, and there was also, and maybe me being prejudiced, but I also wanted somebody that had like a little bit of financial security <laughs> <laughs> and had a regular paycheck so that I knew, cause I was responsible. I never missed my rent. I was never late. I was but I know a lot of dancers that are not the best when it comes to finances. And I didn't want to be stuck with paying the full month's rent because they're like, oh, sorry, man, I can't pay you this month. And then I'm stuck, you know, and next thing you know, we're getting a three-day notice. Like I didn't want that to happen. So if they had a steady job, I didn't care what it was, as long as it was a steady job that you can pay your bills, we get along and you're not in the entertainment world so that we can just, you know, I can just speak freely um, in my home world. And sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. You know, yeah. they're, they're definitely, I felt like I had a high rotation of roommates where I would stay put and they're, they're like, okay, my six months are up or my year is up. And then they would be out and then I got to find somebody else and constantly finding new roommates was always so stressful. Oh my gosh. It was very stressful. That's it's, real. You know, sometimes it was a hit and sometimes it was a miss. And sometimes it was like, I'm just going to go right to my room and we're not going to talk. And then sometimes it was like, let's meet in the living room and chit chat and enjoy watching TV together. You know, it's, it depends. Sometimes I went out with my roommates and we were friends and sometimes we lived completely separate lives. And it was just like, that's your lane. I'm in my lane and, and it worked, but I definitely learned what I liked and what I didn't like in a, in a, a living partner. So, um, once I actually found my husband, then I was like, okay, you meet the criteria. We <laughs> <laughs> you dance very good at the bar mitzvah. And <laughs> I can tell you keep tidy in the kitchen. Um, it's tidy. So I will give him that, especially for a guy. I appreciate that. <laughs> so moving over to, you have three kids mm-hmm. and a husband. Also, mm-hmm. what are their ages? If I may ask? Uh, two, seven and 12. Oh a girl, so a girl, and then a boy. Wow. How, how do you manage your time with all the current plates that you're spinning and in different locations and a family? Like what? There's really, a little like, bit how- of a crazy in me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are days where I'm like, how do I do this? I have to stay organized. I mean, I literally have like my calendar, my iCal, I have schedule blocks for everything that I have to do for every kid and where they have to be my appointments, business appointments, like my team and people that I work with. I have lots of technology that keeps me organized because mentally, if it's not in my calendar, I will forget. I have what they call mom brain sometimes where, and I have a, uh, sometimes my attention span of a squirrel. So I'll be like lasered in on something and then something will distract me. And and then over here, I'm naturally like that. (laughs) But sometimes it gets simple. Like I'm actually impressed. My two-year-old hasn't walked in the room yet. I told my husband, I'm like, I'm doing a podcast interview to keep him out of the office, but I can't tell you how many times he's come in and been a distraction. You know, I work uh, a lot now from my home office, um, which those, if anybody's watching the video, will see, this is my home office. This is where I work, but it's, you know, a few steps away is upstairs is my bedroom. So I live, work, play all under the same roof. I've got two dogs as well. Cool. Um, 
So, you know, I just, I have to maximize my time as best as I can. I, getting time for myself as a mom of three is very challenging. I'm not going to lie. You know, sometimes even just going for a walk with the dogs is my me time, you know, where I will drop off one kid at gymnastics. I'll go to a hiking trail and I'll take my dogs on a walk. I'll get some fresh air and I'll just have some peace and quiet. My dogs don't say anything to me. They just love on me. And then, you know, I go back to my mom life. I work uh, usually during their school hours where I do all my community, you know, my um, computer work. Um, and then sometimes I'm traveling on the weekends, whether I'm judging a dance competition or teaching at a dance convention, or maybe I'm producing an event. So between travel life, home life, work life, kid, husband, try to have a date night, maybe once a month, mm. possibly even then that's challenging. Sometimes we just have family date nights and just, you know, just chuck it up to what it is. It's a family date night. We travel a lot as a family already as it is. Mm. And that was another thing too, that I thought that, cause I was a travel bug. I've been to over 40 countries. Thanks to my dance career. I've been on four different world tours and I've been able to see the world, which is great. But then when I had kids, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to actually buy tickets for everybody. <laughs> mm. And now it's times five. So going somewhere is, is definitely a challenge, but I thought I would never be able to travel again after having kids. And quite frankly, I'm, I'm still trekking my kids along. I don't, I lost track of how many countries they've been on, but um, so I'm still able to be in the dance world in a different capacity. I'm still able to be a wife. I'm still able to be a mom. I'm still able to juggle all this and do some self-care sometimes in the interim. I mean, after baby number three, during the lockdown, April, 2020, I'm sure we all remember those days. Yep. Um, I was stuck at home oh, and I, and I just had a baby and I need to get back in shape. And guess what I did? I started, I created a whole mom dance fitness program for myself was my, I was trying to, I was trying to solve my own problem. I need to get back in shape. So I didn't have childcare. So what did I do? I worked out with my baby. So I used them as weights. I had him babies are baby great care. as weights. I used them in my baby wow. care. We did some cardio dance. I did some stretching. I did some, um, some sculpting. You know, I, I got back in shape without going to the dance studio, without going to the gym. And I created a whole online program um, at home. So I was able to create a new business while solving my own problems as a mom and being stuck at home. So I've, I've constantly had to pivot to my new lifestyle, whether I'm pregnant, whether I'm ha after having kids, whether when I have kids, like whether I'm traveling, whether I'm at home. So it's been constant reinvention. I feel like every few years I go through a midlife crisis of some kind. Where I'm like reinventing, like, okay, I just added a kid. Now what, how do I figure this out? How can I work? How can I travel? How can I make a living? How can I still be a mom? How can I still do what I love and take care of myself? So it's, it's a juggling act. I can't say that I have it all figured out. And it, you know, some days are messy and some days I feel like I have it together, but, but you know, that's life. I mean, what I see also, again, like you're running multiple programs and teaching. And so you, you're effective, like it's, you're, you're making the things happen, you know? And so they're like, there has to be something there. Is it also, do things work seasonally at all? Like, do you have a certain season yes. when you're work? Okay. So yes. it's not um, convention season is generally the fall. So there's only a, a couple of months out of the fall where I'm traveling. Uh, then the, when the spring season comes, that's when I'm judging dance competitions. I might judge or teach at a couple of nationals. And that's usually like July, maybe to June. And then I have um, in March, I also get away to go to London for the London spring tour. And then in LA for the Hollywood summer tour. And that's in uh, end of July, early August. Um, my business of dance mentorship program right now, I'm going to be on a quarterly system. So I just started actually last week, a new cohort. I started one in the fall, one last week. I'm going to start another one 
um, in April. So that'll be my spring. And then I'll start another one in July. That'll be my summer. So the beauty of that business model, I mean, I feel like I've created the dream business model for my lifestyle is it's online. So it doesn't matter where I am. I could be home. I could be traveling and I can still do what I'm doing. And I have an on-demand group coaching model. So I actually pre-record the lessons um, so that they have access to them 24 seven around their schedule. We only meet live once a week. So I actually only have to show up live for my clients once a week on Sundays. Um, And I'm starting to grow a team as well. So it's not just me because I am oftentimes a one woman show, but um, I, I need help. You know, obviously I can't do it all. So I I'm slowly building out my team and bringing new people in um, so that if I need to step away, that my clients are taken care of and um, I can still juggle all the things that I want to do. Like even tonight, I actually want to go take a dance class. I even told my husband, I'm like, I'm going to take my daughter to her volleyball practice. I'm going to sneak away and go take a dance class um, at a local studio. And then I'm going to come home. Like, I just want to dance, I just want to work out. Like I've I've been feeling stuck at this computer um, for the last, you know, every day. I feel like even through the holidays, I sat and I was like, oh, that's the only part I don't like about my new business is I sit along the computer. So I'm like, I need to dance, Uh, whether I'm teaching or just taking a class, but I don't take class enough. I really do enjoy it. So I need to do more of it. I'm doing a, I'm taking in a house class after this. Um, and it's, Good. yeah, I'm like, Oh, it's, it's right in the middle of everything. My brain's already going and in work mode, but I got a dance. I'm a dance like at heart. I'm forever a dancer. Mm-hmm. Why, why am I even say at heart, at heart and in movement and that I'm dancing, you know, once a dancer, um, always a dancer. doesn't matter what stage you are in life. Dance just brings you joy. And now for me, like when I take class, it's not too be seen. It's not to audition. It's just, I just want to take class. I just want to move. I just want to sweat. I just want to feel good. I just want to feel inspired again. Want my body to move in ways. Maybe I haven't moved before just to challenge my mind, challenge my body. And I just feel good. I'm always in a happy place after dance class. Doesn't matter what kind of day I have, whether I'm teaching or being a student, either one, just going into a dance class. I just feel better afterwards. Same, same. Would you mind walking us through? I'm always fascinated by this. Like one of your programs, how do you create it? Cause, and I, I want to say, cause so many people have projects they want to do mm-hmm. and it doesn't happen, you know? So how do you, if you could kind of give a speedy overview for one of them, take it from idea to actually filling it up and having it happen. First, you got to figure out what problem are you solving? That's first and foremost. For me, sometimes I'm solving my own problems. Like my whole mom dance fitness program. I was solving my own problem, which I realized other moms had the same problem. So that's how that created uh, my business of dance. That also came out of organically as well. It was for years, people, dancers and parents have reached out to me asking for career advice and I've helped them. And I've helped a lot of people get agents, get work visas, connecting them to other choreographers and all these things. But then I thought, you know, why don't I take all of the knowledge that I've acquired over these last few decades and package it in a way that actually gives dancers like a clear cut roadmap. So they actually feel like they're going somewhere And, um, you know, having, um, an outline, just a general outline of what your vision is trying to figure out what problem you're solving, who are you helping and what's your promise? What do you promise them? You know, who do I help? I help dancers. What do I help them with? Create their dream dance career. How do I do it? Through an online mentorship program. And by once you have that outline figured out of what problem you're solving, who you're serving, um, creating that outline of what you want. And then pre-selling, this is a big thing I've learned in the online coaching space, especially um, 
And even in the event space, you want to pre-sell something. The biggest mistake that people make, I feel like, is they create a product that they think that everybody wants and they put it out to market and it's crickets. And then they realize, okay, nobody wants what I just created after I spent months or even years creating it. But one of the things I did with my business of dance mentorship program and with my mom dance fitness program, being that it was online, um, is even though I had an outline and I pre-sold them that idea based on that outline, I built the program with my clients. I answered their needs. I said, what do you want to learn? This is what I want to teach you. Is there something else that I'm missing? And I learned so much from my students because I'm able to fill that void instead of creating a program be like, okay, this is what you need. I'm actually creating it with them week by week. I create a new lesson. Okay, great. Next week, we're going to do this. Next week, we're going to do this. Is there anything else you want to learn? Somebody was asking a high school student was like, oh, I want to learn about colleges, dance colleges and how to get into them. And I was like, okay, that's not my expertise. Guess what? I go and reached out and I found a dance college consultant. I'm bringing her in as a guest. I have somebody doing finances, investment advisor. I have a mental skills educator that I'm bringing in. Um, I have somebody doing taxes. I hate doing taxes. I hate talking about taxes. That's not my jam. But I hired an expert that actually knows how to do taxes for dancers. So I'm also leveraging by using other people's skills and talents to fill the areas that I don't know because I don't know everything. I'm not claiming to know everything. So I teach what I know, but I also bring in people that can fill in the gaps to answer to the needs of my clients so that I can create a bulletproof um, product that actually gets them the results that they want and they need. Um, so creating with my clients, I think was just super, super valuable. So figure out what you want, what's the problem you're solving, who you're serving, what's your promise, create an outline, pre-sell, build with your clients, get them the results. And then you get those testimonials and then rinse and repeat. That's amazing. And is there any way to salvage if you didn't do the pre-selling? Um, you can always, you can learning it the hard way. (laughs) You can always revise even in the creation stage that I've done. Now I've re-recorded a few of those lessons where I was like, "Mm, I forgot to mention this, right? Oh, I forgot to do that. So you can always go backwards and redo things. And Mm -hmm. if you realize like, okay, maybe that wasn't so great. I can do better. Okay. Redo it. Um, and you're constantly refining your product. Like even the Hollywood summer tour, I've been doing it. I think this will be our 18th season. And even though there is a structure to it every year, I'm, there's something I'm tweaking. It's like constant little tweak. Yes. I rinse and repeat the general idea and the general concept, but I'm always looking for ways that I can improve things. You know, as you face challenges, as you face problems, you're like, okay, let me find solutions and being solution oriented where you're constantly improving, constantly growing because there's always room for improvement. No product is perfect. And, you know, that's why Products like Apple have updates every now and then, you know, Mm -hmm. because even in technology, there's constantly updates and upgrades. So you have to do the same thing with your business. Where can people find out more about that, about your online mentorship program and your upcoming stuff? Um, So I have two major, I have a bunch of websites. I'm not going to give them all because I'm just confused. MeninaFortunato.com is my personal website. MeninaEntertainment.com is my business website. If you go to MeninaEntertainment.com, it will be the launch pad to all of the things that I'm doing. So you can just go there and find everything that I'm doing. And then everything leads to another website. It's like a whole tree. (laughs) My my Um, website's built like that. Yeah. um, So you'll have uh, access to the Hollywood Summer Tour, the London Spring Tour, the Business of Dance, my dance with Menina, all the things um, you know, all the other projects that I work on are on there. Whereas MeninaFortunato.com is just my personal career stuff. 
So but all of it, fired. all that connects. Yeah. And then I'm on Instagram, Menina Fortunato, M-E-N-I-N-A-F-O-R-T-U-N-A-T-O. Um, Can I ask you a dance mom's question that yeah. you may not be allowed to answer? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I, there's someone I was talking to recently who's binge watching it and you, um, you're on dance moms and the question that I always hear is how, how real is it? <laughs> not very real. <laughs> okay. Like the children are not being, you know, well, talked yes, to okay, yes, yes and no. Okay. So I'll say mm-hmm. this. I, I judge for one dance competition. The competition itself was mm-hmm. purposely made for the show. So it wasn't even a part of their regional tour. They actually created an entire event. They invited some select dance studios to participate. That part was a real competition. I actually did do the video judging uh, with a mic, you know, similar to what we are here. And I did critique all the dances and there were awards and all of those things. Um, As far as the results, I question, um, I'll be honest because my scoring that I remember, I mean, there were other judges, so maybe, maybe they were, but my scoring did not reflect the winners on that stage. So that's where I questioned, but they're very smart because they send the judges outside the theater during the awards. So I wasn't able to really know who won. Like I kind of poked my head in a little bit. And then Abby Lee, she was a funny one. So she actually didn't sit in through the awards initially. She didn't want to go in the theater. She, I, we went outside after this. I hadn't met her during before the show. I judged her kids and I judged everybody else fairly, just like I would judge anybody else. And then I came into the lobby and then she was there. And then I'm thinking, well, aren't you supposed to be inside the theater? And she's like, I don't feel like going inside. <laughs> so, so, talking but then the other director of the rival studio comes wa- marching out and she's like oh you're over here fraternizing with the judges and, and she gave me and the other judges the evil eye and all this stuff and I'm like the results are okay. like i um, and i didn't get a chance to meet i didn't meet the kids until after the competition was over so i met jojo and maddie ziegler and um gosh sia and Mackenzie forget the other names, but they were like 12 at the time. It was oh 2015. God. Now they're all like grown up and superstars, but um, yeah, that was, it was a fun, it was a fun game. I enjoyed it. I, I just, yeah. I, I, you know, questioned the validity of the competition portion because it was literally filmed for the show. Yeah. I mean, from what I've heard, like in general TV, it's, it's for TV. So it's not necessarily for what happened there that day. It's for TV. Good. Of course um, it is. TV that's going to get renewed. So I want to thank you for taking the time and your busy schedule and just let you know, like you're very inspiring to me. Um, I I just really appreciate your time and your heart and going on this adventure with me. I know I can roller coaster it up a little bit. And me too. I, I, when I get on these tangents, Yay, it's more fun that way. I'm like all over the place. I'm like, where are we going? <laughs> That's what I love. Those are the interviews I listen to um, in other podcasts. The direct dry stuff. It's just not, this is not what I'm about here. Thank you for listening to the episode. I learned so much from it. And I know if I learned from it, I can't be the only one. Please be sure to share this with your community. Take a screenshot, tag us on Instagram at Dance Speak Podcast. OMG. And Menina is really that nice. She is so kind, so generous, offers so many nuggets. I've been implementing some of them already. Um, 
just really, really nice. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. We have currently a new episode every month and our library is no joke. These episodes don't have an expiration date. There are so many like just rich stories and tips and things that don't expire. In fact, there's over 186 of them. So be sure to check it out. There's a couple of ways to support if you're feeling like, hey, I got a lot out of this. I'd love to give back and it doesn't have to cost a thing. It doesn't have to cost a thing. Um, so one way is by subscribing to the podcast. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you ahead for a five-star rating. <laughs> you can rate us on Spotify. Those are some ways. If you want to make a donation, it really makes a difference. Like, can you hear that in my voice? You make a donation to Venmo or PayPal via Venmo or PayPal. You just make it to dancespeakpodcast at gmail.com. And please, like, if it's if you feel like, oh, it's not a lot, I don't want to seem cheap or anything. No, like literally you could do one dollar and we would still thank you. You know, um, we'd still appreciate that. So Thank you ahead of time if you're doing that. And if you're on the fence, please just, uh, yeah. And it might even be a tax write-off depending where you're at. Some other things coming up. I'm so excited to announce I'm going to be on faculty at the Dance Mix. This is a convention that Doctors for Dancers are putting on in September in Arizona. So check out the Dance Mix. Um, I think you just go go to the website, doctorsfordancers.com. And it's going to be, I don't know what I can share yet. So this is what I'll this is what I can share. You're going to have dope dance classes and choreographers there. And also on the flip side, you're going to have classes and clinics and a huge amount of support and education on how to properly train your mind, your body um, for the demands of dance. This is something that's a long time coming. And again, I'm like so excited to be doing it. In the spirit of that, my online fitness courses, it's something that I created out of necessity. I have been working with dancers as a dance teacher and as someone who gives conditioning for dancers for years and years. And there's so many basic concepts. Let's like even talk about a really proper plank or a really proper squat that can help with the muscles that dancers need that we need to be powerful when we're dancing and to prevent injuries and to have longevity. So I have workouts, two different courses at two different levels. If you feel more beginner or have never had someone like really fully break it down, I recommend you start with Fitness Fundamentals. It's a set of um, 10 on-demand videos. That means you can play them anytime from anywhere and replay them and exercise library, stretch. And if you are at a more advanced level and want something you can do quickly from anywhere that's going to um, give you a higher level of challenge fit from home. Both of them you can get on my website, gogalit.com, just G-O-G-A-L-I-T.com. Go down to online fitness courses and bam, you'll be right there. Put Dance Speak 20, the number 20 at checkout for 20% off. A big thank you to ESPLA. And I want you like, these are resources. It's not, you know, um, any, like anything else. ESPLA, so ES Photography LA owned by Suzette Mora. I love the word 
work that Suzette's been doing. So she's a photographer that works with everyone and specializes with dancers. So go to Suzette to get your headshots, your body shots. I think especially um, if you need to get your photos refreshed and you're in LA or you're traveling to LA, just the level of quality here from photographers, like the playing field is already so high and Suzette has beautiful work. Just go to es.photography.la on Instagram. She's offering our listeners $50 off the shoot, your shoot. Um, just mention Dance Speak. And yeah, so you can just reach out on Instagram. And yeah, there's nothing like having pro photos. I find that I need them at every point in my career. So whether it's when I was dancing professionally or now as a choreographer, um, as a thought leader, because I have the podcast, because I'm a trainer, because I'm a choreographer and all these things, I need photos to represent all of that. And yeah, just always having materials sharp, which I feel this episode really reminded me of the power of what an email can do. And I have gotten booked off of emails before. So I think that's about it. I just want to say I love you all. <laughs> like, seriously, thank you for listening. Don't be a stranger. Um, I've had some people approach me after class and be like, hey, I've been listening to the podcast. And can I tell you how much that means? Like, I hope that, you know, we all can acknowledge anyone who impacts us because I will tell you, I love doing this. And I would say it's a labor of love, not like I'm ooh suffering, but it's, you know, taken thousands of hours to do this and a lot of behind the scenes. So sometimes just a, hey, I'm listening and thank you and thumbs up is like, for me, it's like a parade and a light on a, a day when I really need it. And you can follow me at Gogalit. Okay, I can. Oh my gosh. Am I getting choked up? Gogalit, G O G A L I T. You're going to see lifestyle stuff and fitness stuff and dance stuff and like food stuff in my stories. And that's about it. I cherish our time together and I will see you soon. Peace. guys thank you so much for listening to our dance speak podcast for inquiries suggestions comments on your favorite guests or who you'd like to see on the show please email us at dancespeakpodcast at gmail.com that's d-a-n-c-e-s-p-e-a-k-p-o-d-c-a-s-t at gmail.com and check back in next week for our latest interview thank you so much 